that's the perfect example of the problem with Christianity. It has become so much religiously based, so much of religiosity that when you think my theology or my belief in this situation is better than your belief, and if you aren't going to comply, I'm going to go start something else. Right. You know, and that's completely away from what the first church, first century church was about. You know, it was about trying to create community instead of finding things to pick community apart. Welcome to Crossing Faiths, where Christian Muslim talk religion and politics. I'm John Pinna, uh, the resident Muslim in, of the podcast. Matthew Hawkins and I will be recording either later on today or tomorrow. Uh, and I have a, a good friend here, Pastor Tim, who is the pastor of Trinity Lutheran, mm-hmm. or Trinity Evangelical, and uh, Redeemer Evangelical, which is Lutheran. Two, yeah, two Lutheran, two Lutheran churches. churches. That's the umbrella. And so, uh, and we, 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 we've collaborated a little bit. Uh, this is, Pastor Tim is my neighbor uh, from down the street, and we collaborated on an event just recently. Uh, and, uh, and so I thought it be, uh, might be appropriate for us to sit down and have a chat about uh, a few a few subject matter uh, elements that we talk about just when we're outside or passing coffee to each other and continue the conversation uh, while recording. So, Pastor Tim, thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm honored to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about you first. I just found out that you worked in the steel mills. Yeah, I worked in the steel mills of Western Pennsylvania for 20 years uh, before I left to uh, go to seminary. So doing what? What is like? What's so? As I might like working the steel mills, I think of we have Foundry Cove down the way down the way here. I don't yeah. know if you've been down the Foundry Cove. I, yeah. And and so it's you know it's like the Silicon Valley of the like the you know the eighteen hundreds, and uh, and so you know I think of molten steel furnaces, you know, pouring red hot metal steel into vats. And uh, all those sparks flying all over the place. So tell me what, like, what it is. What, what, it, what is a steel mill from someone who's been there, done that, and and what it is that you did? Well, for the first five year, or four years, I should say, I worked in a foundry, which was exactly that. Molten yeah. steel being poured. Uh, I've seen sparks fly. How uh, cool is that? You know, I worked uh, on what's called shakeout, which is one of the dirtiest jobs where you poured it that your your mold into a casting. And then as it cools, it moves down a conveyor belt. And then when it gets to a point where you can actually shake the, the sand and the dust that makes the, the mold for it to be poured into, uh, you need someone to operate that shake out. Wow. And so okay. I used to do that. And uh, what about slag? Uh, I've seen slag. I've seen someone, a, a rookie, step into slag and almost burn his foot off, uh, you know, and then they take it out in the back and they reuse it. Right. You know, they'll put other mixtures in it. So, so I did that for four years. So slag is is when it's like an impure cast, right? Or something well, yeah, like that. Or the leftover. The leftover. It can right. also be considered okay. a slag as well. Okay. But there's enough, you know, of uh, the chemicals to be used for, you know, remelt. Yeah. And, uh, and and so I, I did that for four years. And then I went into cold roll steel, which was a little safer. Okay. Uh, where we take uh, strips of steel that are come in maybe a quarter of an inch eighth of an inch thick and we roll it down to thousands of an inch uh the one uh, steel that i used to work with we rolled it down to like 18 thousandths of an inch and it would be used for for blades you know for you know, razor blades and stuff like right. that but we did some thick uh roll downs that would be used for flywheels inside of you know vehicles and gears and stuff like that so it was a variety of stuff and i worked uh, reduction mills temper mills Wherever there was an opening, I bid on it because I figured the more I knew, the less likely I was to get laid off. Right. You know, and then after 20 years of that, uh, I felt drawn into the church and uh, into ministry. But I had to do four years of undergraduate work because I got out of high school. I thought I was going to be in a steel mill the rest of my life. So I didn't even worry about going on. To was that, that a happy, like, you know, going to the steel mill? Because was that a happy choice? Uh, or was it? I like wouldn't a- say it was happy or unhappy. It was a logical choice for me. You work eight hours, you punch out. You don't have, you don't take work home with you. Sure. You know? and, and it was half decent pay, you know? Yeah. So it, I guess it was an easy out. Yeah. Uh, I did not like high school. Sure. I couldn't wait to get out of high school. 
Uh, you know, and so uh, once I got out of high school, it was easy to go work an eight-hour job and go home. Sure. I, I worked at the shipyards in, in Albany and, uh, and, in, and in Algiers down in New Orleans. And uh, I grew up doing restoration carpentry in the summers. And, and I was always really, when I was driving, I worked at one of five shipyards left in the country that builds wooden masted ships. It's really cool. It's in the southern part of, of the port of Albany place called Scrano Boat Building. The sons run it now, but the father started it. Cool. But whenever I drove on to the port, because, you know, everything's larger than life, these big warehouses where you're building things that move, you really feel like you're getting things done and can like plugged into like a long lineage of just hard work, you know, super like American, like sort of feeling. Not that it, it doesn't happen all over the world, but you're part of this global brotherhood of, of people that are doing things, you know, and, uh, and, and stuff and, and, and like, and things that end up lasting a long time. Like some of the vessels that we worked at were at, uh, are still like Chelsea Piers, so ironic one and two. Those are two sailing vessels that are down at Chelsea Piers. You can, if you go around the, the, uh, the Statue of Liberty, you, 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 you've been on one of the boats that I worked on. So it must've been cool to like work on stuff, uh, to produce things that people are using, but just going in and being around that, I think is, uh, has a, a set, gives you, a, I know it gave me a sense of, of not only purpose, but like connection with something larger than myself that was not only practical, but just, you know, you're working with your hands, you've got your, you're meddling with things, you're finding solutions, you know, what was your, your feelings coming out of that or doing it? I mean, it's, it's a, you know, I'm asking a steelworker about feelings. So maybe you're like, you know, we, we needed to do stuff. We did it and we got it done, you know, yeah. it, you know, and I, first off, it was a small shop. Uh, when I did the cold roll still, there was probably maybe at the most 30 of us there. Uh, but we were treated like machines. I mean, actually the machines were treated better than us. You know, I mean, there were times I got hurt. Uh, we were a small shop, you know, union, there was no national union. So I wasn't connected to anything in that way. And, uh, and like I said, the pay was good, got to work eight hours, but still when I was there, uh, it was very obvious the machines were more important than me, you know? Uh, and so uh, that connection that you make, I, I never made. You never made, okay. You know, yeah. Uh, I was a peon working, but they were paying me good to be a peon. So I was willing to be a peon, you know? And, and I think that's probably why when I started to, because I was out of the church for, for uh, 10 years of my life from when I was 14 to I was 24. Sure. And so when I went back into the church, all of a sudden that was something that was bigger than myself. That was bigger than working in the steel mill. Sure. You know? And so I started to volunteer for Sunday school. I was a lay worship leader. I, I assisted the pastor, you know, I did all that stuff and I get kept on getting pulled further and further into the church. And in that, in that I felt more worth than I felt at work, Huh. you know? And, uh, and maybe that's what opened my ears to the call in the ministry. But uh, it's always tough when you got to do it for a paycheck and, and everything else. I mean, I needed the money back then. You know, I grew up poor, but but I think that I romanticize it quite a bit. Like when I think of dusk at the at the at the shipyard, particularly the in the building, and I I can think of the oranges coming through with the sun and the smell of the wood and all the different timbers, and I'm like. If I think of if I if I think of three if I think of paradise in my mind one of the three images is that place at that moment you know now I mean hard work yeah you know uh, you know stuff like if you when we were doing glassing you know it's, it, it's liquid so it's, you have to put a couple parts together and if you don't you don't thin it and put and apply it fast enough it combusts you know so all that dangerous stuff was going on but I think I romanticize it quite a bit because I spent a couple just a couple years doing it. Uh, and I do love wood, admittedly, and I love and I'm and I have this I fetishize uh, masted ships and and all that stuff. Um, but uh, but I can understand if you needed to earn a paycheck and punch in and, yeah. to, and your family was relying on you. And I mean, here at the bakery, you know, that donut machine. It's like, I'm like, this is you understand all of the robot friends are really important. And one day the machines are going to take over and they're going to talk to each other. That's what I tell everybody. <laughs> you know, so and I was, I was like, you know, um, and everybody kind of laughs at me and I'm like, oh. but um, but they are, I could the importance of machine of the of the robot of our robot friends, and the, the, every time that guy comes in here to repair it, it's a thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and we're just a mom and pop here. So 
I, I not that it, that we value the machines over ever over our staff because our staff is our, is the most valuable piece of who we are, um, and uh, along with our donut batter, which is a close and guarded secret. But uh, but I, it, it's really important to maintain um, to maintain the machines and stuff. So I kind I kind of understand what you're saying. It must be tough. Must have been tough to kind of muddle through and you know you're you're surrounded by danger all the time oh, yeah i mean i saw saw my colleagues go down i myself got caught in a baler uh, which takes the scrap metal when you trim it off the sides of the of the cold roll steel as you're cutting it down for various other projects that's going to be used in uh i was running the scrap machine which was basically taking that long string of steel and, and putting it into a bell and uh it wasn't pulling it in fast enough for as fast they were running the machine. And so I went to kick one of the, the strands and it caught my boot and started pulling me into the baler. And uh, when they turned it off, I could just feel my shin bone, the pressure of it. If they would have waited one more second, it would have snapped my leg. Wow. You know, and then they couldn't figure out how to get my leg out of it. Right. You know, they're going, okay, do we let the bell out? The bell weighs hundreds of pounds. I'm going, because the guy's going in the in the crane, he's going. I think I can catch it with the magnet before <laughs> it crushes his legs. I'm going, wait, thinking I can do it, or I've done this before and I can do it. Two different things. Right. I said it ain't happening, right, right. you know. And and I said I can reach up there. Give me a knife. I can cut the shoestrings. I'll get my, you know, my foot out of here. Yeah, you know? but you know, it's just like. And then I got uh, got caught in one of the well, the skim fast machine, the temper mill. Uh, the roll was coming off and, and I had to fix the gauge because it was, it drifted and why they had the gauge on the far side of the sheet. I don't know, but I reached across, it caught my arm and pulled me into the coil and thank goodness someone was coming by. They were able to hit the emergency stop. So it would release the pressure and I was able to get out, but I had flipped around once and my foot got caught in the rail. And I knew that if I went around another Perfect. time, it was going to either snap my ankle off or completely, you know, multiple breaks on my ankle. But the guy hit the emergency stop before that happened. Wow. You know, but it was like they brushed it off. You know, did you damage the machine? It was the big question. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it, but a lot of that has to do with projection too. You know, you if everybody's in peril, you know, like I've, you know, been been overseas in crazy, all kinds of crazy situations where, um, you know, we're in, we're in, you're, you're life's in danger and you end up focusing on the, the thing that doesn't make it personal for you, you know? And so a lot of guys are like, you know, did you, you know, it's a good thing. You did, good thing you didn't damage your rifle, you know, like, and you're, meanwhile, like, you know, we're, we're all being shelled, you know, or there's phosphorus all over there, you know, and then, you know, everybody's, you know, we're, but everybody, everybody's in, in not only in peril, but, you know, we're life or death situations and people are like, you know, the first thing they do is they go, well, you know, you're, you're, I was trying, I was, try, I was in, we were in Syria and, and, uh, and we were trying to get some refugees out and build a, a humanitarian corridor. And it's really funny this one of our, one of our buddies, his, his, he, he ended up being, having a couple of close calls and his pants were torn up and he was complaining about his pants. And we were just really laughing. We just started to go, because it came to a point, he goes, he goes I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have another replacement pants, replacement for pants. What are we going to do? And, I, and we're sitting there going, that's the worst of our problems. And he complained about his pants. And, and so for a while there, he was walking around quite tattered. Um, and, and he had already gone through a pair of pants because he had uh, a, a bathroom mishap. And, didn't, and so it was really kind of funny. Um, that's a whole nother story. But uh, so we, so, but it's funny, we were focusing on his pants when we all knew that we were all, it all can happen at any, at any moment, any one of us could, could be, yeah. you know, could not come back. And so I, 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 I look at maybe from that perspective, because you're always kind of focused on the job and the machines or the, the, the mission, but you not, you don't want to, you don't want to focus too much on yourselves. Cause if you do, it's bad luck. It's oh, yeah. I mean, you, you, when suspicious. you start looking over your shoulder, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll never forget. I, after I got caught in, in the coil, they sent me to the emergency room because they were worried about, you know, injury, back injury or whatever. Cause I mean, I literally got flipped around and thank goodness I did gymnastics in high school. Cause I knew how to tuck and roll. But anyways, uh, I come back and a guy was picking up scrap from outside a business outside. He takes it to a scrap yard and sells mm -hmm. it and stuff. 
but he, he come walking in, he was using the restroom and it was right by the restroom, you know, and I come back and, you know, I got my arm, you know, bandaged up and stuff like that. And, and he's standing there and he goes, what happened to you? And so I got caught in the coil. So you got caught in that? He says, and you're walking? You know, I said, yeah. I said, I, I don't know. He says, uh, he says, I'm not a religious person. He says, but something in the universe got something else planned for you. Right. I'm going, whatever. I said, I'm just glad I'm walking, you know, right. and I just blew it off because I, I wasn't in the church at the time. Well, it's a great lead into how you were to, to becoming a pastor. So you you left the steel mill and you decided to go to school. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you're a Lutheran evangelical pastor. Is that right? Correct. So let's start off with Lutheran. So I, like, I so my experience from Lutheran is from my my best friend, Brett's Lutheran. So he thinks that because he's Lutheran, he's the most dangerous person on the planet. He's a tank tank commander uh, <laughs> so in the US Army. So he thinks he's the most dangerous person on the planet. And admittedly, uh, Charles twelfth, I think it was uh, of Sweden. Uh, when, when, when he took power, he was 13 years old and everybody thought he was going to be a pushover. Uh, this is the great Northern war in like the 1720s and, uh, uh early 1700s. And, um, what happened? He, uh, the, the, the Netherlands, the low countries, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Lithuania, Estonia and Russia and, uh, and the Danes all attacked him at once. And of course, because he had a Lutheran army, because of their outlook on life, um, they, they they put down the Low Countries and the Danes in, uh, I think it was a matter of weeks, it was about six weeks. And then and then Latvia, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and a few weeks later, and then the Russia was their only, was their only enemy, hammered the Russians until Poltava broke his arm, where, uh, where Charles broke his arm, and he had to lead from the back and his generals muddied the water with his battle plans ended up exiled in Turkey for six years, five years, then comes back, raises another army, reattacks Russia and then sues for peace. And then the Swedes haven't been at war ever since. Right. So they're for like 180, 190 years, whatever. Amount. So, uh, but the, what comes out of the, the bad boys of Europe. So everything's Germany, but that's only in the 20th century. And then, then in the 19th century, it was the French, right? But before that, it was always the Swedes. And uh, and a lot of people attribute that to, to the Lutheran mindset of how they view the world and how they view themselves in the world. So maybe, maybe unpack what Lutheranism is for us. Uh, for me, what drew me to Lutheranism was uh, none of that history. So none of it. No, so I, not being the bad boys. Yeah, you 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 approach things from a military because that's kind of your background. Right. Uh, me, I look at uh, what is the theology that frees us, that opens us up. And Luther was the one who went back into Paul and, and discovered justification by grace through faith. Right. And it it changed this whole outlook on everything. Now, the last ten years of his life, he became an angry curmudgeon. Some of the stuff he writ, wrote, I just blow off because you know what? He should have been in a nursing home, maybe. You know, I, I you know. Uh, but what drew me into Lutheranism were two things: was the understanding of justification by grace through faith, and then I discovered Bonhoeffer's letters from prison. I don't know if you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. He was a Lutheran that. theologian during the the, the Nazi regime. Yeah. Um, spoke out against uh, the the final solution of of, of Hitler. Uh, ended up uh, part of a an assassination attempt. He was the communication guy, the touch point, trying to track Hitler down so that you know his colleagues could do what they were going to do. Uh, said it was it was the lesser of two evils, but yes, it was still evil. But if it was going to save lives, he was willing to even go to prison, which he did, and he hung for it. Uh, but from prison, he started writing. Look, well, he started to look in retrospect back at at Europe and in, in Germany in particular. You know, and how could we get into two world wars and have Christians on both sides blessing the troops to go kill other Christians? You know, how could we get into that? And so he started to do a word study while he was in prison. And he was communicating with his friend, Bethke, who was also a, a Lutheran pastor who was drafted and who was, you know, uh, in the German army. 
but he was writing to him and saying, you know, this crazy stuff's happening to me while I'm in prison because he's, he's studying the word righteousness, right relationships through the Hebrew Bible into Christianity. And what he came to realize was that righteousness was more important than salvation. Hmm. You know, salvation, if you read you know, the, the Tanakh, was God's realm. Righteousness was where we can participate in that salvation, when we can live rightly with each other. You know, uh, the prophets, you know, were saying, God demands your righteousness more than your sacrifice. You know, so he started doing this word study and it, it hit him. And he said he read that many times, but he didn't realize that when the, uh, oh, the disciples were before the Sanhedrin, uh, how they identified Jesus was the righteous one. Right. You know, and so this understanding of righteousness started just to swirl around him. And what he came across was that he believed that, you know, Jesus was not here to set up another religion. Jesus was here to teach us how to live righteously with each other, no matter whether we were Jew or non-Jew. And, and so he just started, you know, exploring this. And he did an outline for a book that he wanted to write if he got out of prison. And he said it to his friend Betke. And Betke, who was an Orthodox Lutheran, didn't know what to do with it. So he just kind of archived it and eventually worked into his books. But it was just an outline. But as I read this outline and his exploration of a religionless Christianity, uh, it just blew me away. And that's one of the things that just pulled me into the Lutheran faith. Uh, you know, the history, yeah, it's important, but I think the history of the theological struggle within the Lutheran church becomes even more important to me, you know, as a, and a pinnacle of that, of that struggle is Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he wrestles with living within this, this, you know, this, I don't want to call it an empire, you know, because it tried to be, but Germany didn't quite get that, that level, but living within this regime that was completely turning the world upside down and actually using some of Luther's writings to do so, you know, um, just pulled me into this, okay, the world is always going to be in struggle because we're human beings, you know, uh, there's my side, there's your side. I mean, we, we just can't seem to get out of that mentality. So the question becomes to me as a person, someone feeling drawn into ministry is, okay, how do we articulate? How do we argue through that? And Bonhoeffer plopped down in the middle of, of the Nazi regime becomes my foundation of that argument. Okay. So it's like, so it becomes like a backdrop where you're sitting there trying to figure out, okay, I mean, because it's, it's a really great backdrop, right? So you guys are trying to find righteousness within an, an amoral society yeah. or regime and but but that's utilizing the same um, um sort of uh, uh so pillars of of lutheranism within their own to justify their own actions right and and what and, and what admittedly anazi would consider to be righteous right so they you know the idea of um whether it be the final solution or or racial purity and all that other good stuff um they would and i mean that you know ironically saying good stuff the, the idea that, that they felt that they were that their regime was uh, an extension of something that would be um, you know godly um, I think and, and then of course yeah, there's the occult elements of it but um, so if the, so the top three reasons like so why so why Lutheranism like you say see, this is what called to you and we talked a little bit earlier offline when we were chatting you said that you come from a like what did I say? I think it was Lutheranism is in your DNA. You found out that family members of yours were Lutherans back in the day, and you were unaware of that. Yeah, generations back. Generations. Yes, you know, actually helped found the church in Western Pennsylvania. Right. So I'm not no. So so maybe it was in your DNA, and you were just programmed to do it. Right. So, but if you were going to sit there and say to somebody, we are we are in a town that's known for its churches. Right. It's known for so having so many churches. And the guy came in today and said, "How can we have so many churches?" And I said, "Well." America is a fountain with you know, the, the part of the original Dutch patent. Um, there was the, there's, there was uh, a lot of people came, a lot of the people, the people came from Europe for religious, you know, persecuted, religiously persecuted over there, or they came for economic opportunity here. But once so many, so many people came here uh, of different Christian faiths, there started to be quite a bit of animosity towards each other, you know, Christian on Christian persecution, with a big, with air quotes, uh, and that led to what's called the Flushing Remonstrance during the 
Dutch period and it transitioned as the British signed on to it, which was basically saying there's a lot of Christians here. You guys all believe differently. Stop with whatever nonsense is going on. If you need to do, if you need to, if you need to disagree with somebody, you can just open up a church over here, which is why we have a lot of churches oh, yeah. here. Oh yeah. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about what it is about this. They like said the difference because there's Lutheranism, right? And then there's Lutheran evangelical, right? Or are they the same? Well, there's, there's Lutheran church. You have the Wisconsin Synod, you have the Missouri Synod, you have the ELCA, which is actually probably about, I think, if I do my count right, I think it's four synods that came together and said, hey, what, there's more things we agree with than we disagree. Let's see if we can work together. Okay. And so that formed the ELCA, you know, and, uh, what, what you know, are the but, top things that you believe in, like, if you were going to say, like, so in, in Islam, we have five pillars and we, we you know, what, what, are, what, are the, what are the pillars that you, that's, that's Lutheranism at its core and what's Lutheran evangelicalism that makes it, you know, the, you know, speak to you? Yeah. For me, uh, two things for, for Lutheranism, justification by grace through faith, which means that our justification is a gift that comes from God. It's not something we earn. It's, it's a gift that's given to God. And then the understanding sola scriptura, scripture alone, uh, which means that uh, we use scripture as the foundation of our decisions on how we're going to act in this situation or how we're going to act in that situation or how we're going to structure who we are as a gathering, as an ecclesia, as a church. Um, now, the thing that makes the Evangelical Lutheran Church different than Missouri Synod or, or the Wisconsin Synod or one of the other smaller, the North American Synod that actually just came out of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, because in 2009, we made a decision that we weren't going to discriminate against people because of their, their sexual identity or, or the gender, you know, or any of that. We were going to permit people to go to seminary, you know, and, uh, and so a group of people said, you know what, we don't like that. And so we went, we formed the North American Lutheran church, you know? So, so usually as getting back to what you said, uh, there's so many churches in town because sooner one time or another, someone got pissed off at someone, right. You know, um, the, the, the Lutheran churches in town, perfect example. Trinity was the first one here, right? It was a German speaking church. Second generation wanted an English mass and the Germans said nine, yeah. you know, and they said, fine, we'll go form another church, you know, and, and so they did. They went and formed another church that became Redeemer. Um, another church, another group of people from Trinity a little bit later uh, felt Trinity because I forget what synod they followed, but they felt that was too liberal. So they went and they formed Emmanuel, right. you know, it was a theological, you know, thing. And then there was a fourth Lutheran church, and I don't remember what they split off for, but it was a disagreement of some type. Sure. You know, uh, it wasn't because everyone was sitting around singing Kumbaya, yeah. you know. And, and to me, that's, that's the perfect example of the problem with Christianity. It has become so much religiously based, so much a religiosity that when you think my theology or my belief in this situation is better than your belief, and if you aren't going to comply, I'm going to go start something else, right. you know, and that's completely away from what the first church, first century church was about. You know, it was about trying to create community instead of finding things to pick community apart. Right. right. So, I mean, that's and, that, and I mean, it was good the flushing remonstrance because it meant that there was there, stopped, there wasn't religious there wasn't religious wars in America. I'm not saying that didn't happen with certainly because of Manifest Destiny and, and the American natives and so, and so forth. But. It was one of those, we just, just had this kind of like, said, conversation with a guy who walked in and I said, well, you know, it was, it's actually not a bad thing, you know, uh, but now that the churches are combining and, and because of, of, of uh, um, you know, the, the, they're not listenership, but the, the uh, communities are getting smaller and smaller and they need to now consolidate around uh, a single campfire. Um, so, so we, we talked, you said Sola Scriptura. So, um, which I think for our listeners is, is an interesting thing. So the idea that that there's the one scripture, right, and that it the, and it's it's the canon, right? The apocrypha is 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 adjacent, right, to it, right? That sort of thing. It's, it's a nice it's a nice read, but it's in another room, right? It's another room, and then the Gnostic Gospels are in two rooms down, that's maybe right. a hallway. That's right. Okay, so okay, so. All right. So, and, and like I said, for our listeners, reform, 
Lutheranism is, is part of the Reformation. It's on the other side of Catholicism and, 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 and Eastern Orthodoxy. And, and I mean that just as a definition purpose, an not identification. identification. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not pandering. So, but we were talking about Sola Scriptura. So, and it always, I always, when I always go down this road, I start to always start, we, you and I have conversations about Paul and I know I'm pretty hard on him, although I had uh, with, with, with Matthew, my co-host, but uh, it's about like 88, and this is the, this is the gospels we're talking about now, yeah. right? So, uh, I mean, is there a difference? Cause gospels, is there a difference? Well, the, the, the gospels are the ones that try to identify Jesus's history or life, you know, right. condensed. That's the new Testament. And then you have the right. old Testament is a Torah. Right. right. You know, but within, but within the, the new Testament, you have the gospels, the four, the first four books, then you have the letters, the epistles, which is Paul, James, you know, John, you know, John's wacky uh, trip through history, known <laughs> as the Book of Revelation. You know, uh, you have those, and so there is a separation. Uh, you know, the Torah is made up the first five books, and then you have the prophets, and then you have the writings. Right. You know, the New Testament, you have the Gospels, the first four books. And then you have the epistles and it's the various letters that were written. Right. And so this is, it's just good to unpack this for people. Cause I, I know that there's people that may or may not, like I was just at a, a friend of mine who is a Sunni uh, Imam and he just two years ago went to Karbala and uh, he is uh, a, pastor, uh, a pastor. He's an Imam in, um, in, in DC. And he came back after, working on 30 years of age of, of interfaith work and said, God, you know, I really now understand the Shia because it's a place of pilgrimage, Karbala in, 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 in Iraq. And I go, what took you so long? You know, because it's like, why? I was like, if this, if that's, I, why wouldn't you go along that path? You know, and then, and uh, when I was at the American Islamic Congress, I used to have to pray, with, I didn't have to, I prayed with the entire Ummah, the Muslim, American Muslim and global Muslim community, as well as different faith communities and people would always get nervous. They're like, well, I can understand I can go into a church or I understand I can go to a temple or I understand why you pray with these Sunnis or whatever. And I go, how am I, how are we going to, first of all, I think we're obligated to follow through traditions. It doesn't mean that I'm uh, a convert or this or that. It means I'm trying to understand and unpack some of this stuff. And I'm lucky to come from a multi-faith family, but for our listeners, I, I think it's interesting to unpack, kind of like, hey, what Sola Scriptura relates to these specific books, right? And and why do you do you look at these these books as why why is Sola Scriptura so important to your faith tradition? Because when I unpack faith for people, I say it's community. Faith, mm-hmm. faith is three things: community, theology, and identity. And and it can be you could practice probably you can be religious and practice any one of those things probably better if you, there's two or three but some people just like the community some people just like the identity some people you know they don't practice you know some people just like the theology and so um and it's a, so from from those three perspectives um uh, identity theology and and community how is sola scriptura really a, 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 an important part of the glue within those three things for your community well, I think just what you you, met, you mentioned, but in the midst of that community is we see our understanding of God continuing to bubble up and be the adhesive that holds all of that theology, community, all of that together, you know, and uh, and for me, if, if I can give you an, an example, sure. um, you know, uh, the whole understanding of justification by grace through faith is a gift from God. Uh, Paul took it to Abraham. You know, the fact that Abraham was considered righteous before and righteous in, in justification in, in Hebrew and in Greek are the same words. The, the word used in Greek means justification and it means righteousness. The word in Hebrew means justification. It means righteousness as well. And, and so and so Paul takes it to Abraham and uh, which is great because before anything, before the law, before circumcision, Abraham's considered as righteousness. That's obviously a gift that that God. Which saw. is a smart move because he's able to now take the Jew, the Jewish Jesus movement, and he's able to put it into like the public space with with, with by taking this, the back door through through Abraham in right right. I mean, because exactly. you know he's uncircumcised, like you well, said. And he's well, like, he leaps frogs. He leaps frogs over the the Levitical laws. Yeah, you know where's you know all that stuff kind of kind of rests. And, and he's a good, he's Greek, 
he's, you know, he's a Hellenistic Jew. So he, he's, he, he's a Greek in argument, but he also knows the Jewish traditions in argument. And so if you, the closer you get to the beginning of the scripture of the, of the Hebrew Bible, the more foundation you have for your argument, you know, so he leapfrogged over the Levitical laws and lands in the Abraham story and said, Hey, wait a minute, before the law, Abraham was considered as righteous. The thing was for me was, okay, I followed Paul's lead, but then I came across a story in Genesis that blew me away, you know, and that, because we think of Genesis, oh, that's when everything fell apart and God showed God's wrath, kicked him out of the garden and all this stuff, you know, but wait a minute, before that happened, you know, when, when, you know, Adam takes this, this, uh, tree of knowledge and applies this knowledge and argues with God when God says, who told you this, you know, or who made you do this? Adam turns to God and goes, hey, the woman who you gave me. So not only is, is Adam blaming Eve, right. Adam is blaming God, right. you know? And so ancient writers or ancient readers would go, well, that's it, Abraham's done, he's toast. This God is, you know, any other religion in a, in a suzerainty treaty would say, he deserves to die. Yeah. You know, but what does God do? God says, eh, you know what? There's repercussions for what you did. You screwed up this community. So you're going to have to leave the garden right. and you're going to have to work your ass off the rest of your life. But before you go, those leaves, your seasonal dress isn't going to hack. So what does God do? The very first sacrifice in the Hebrew Bible is not humans to satisfy God or to appease God. It's God to cover our mistakes. So God sacrifices an animal and covers them with the skin, a beloved animal, an animal that God said was good. Right. God is willing to sacrifice that animal and cover the mistake of this foolish human being. You know, to me, as a Lutheran, all of a sudden, my justification flags are flying all over. You know, here it is right here, the very foundation of it. God justifying God making things right, right without Adam doing anything to deserve it. In fact, Adam should have been destroyed. Right. You know, and it's like I remember discovering that. And I mean, chills ran up and down. My, I came from the whole. I mean, my grandmother, when I finally, you know, because I didn't really grow up in church, but my grandmother moved in, took me to a holiness church where it was hill and brimstone. And man, if I messed up on any, any ordinance, God got God's divine finger, you know, hovering over the smite button right. and it's going to take you out. And now here this story is where this person should have been taken out. And God, in an ancient time, a writer saw this grace of God and said, hey, the fact that we're around after how we screwed this up, that's God's grace. It's interesting. It's interesting take on it because somebody like Hitchens, you know, I'm sure you're, you know, do is a the famous atheist would say, well, it's all a construct of God. So why even hold people accountable? Why help and hurt and do all this stuff? Why even impose a law? So, so from that perspective of the beginning, how would you unpack that? You know, well, just just the simple fact that uh, who we are and how quickly we turn on each other, you know. Uh, marriage is still pretty, pretty new. And I'm, I'm ready to throw my wife under the, mm. under the bus, right, right. you know, uh, that tells me a reason for, for laws. And there's laws in the universe. You know, if you ask why laws, well, look what's happening in the universe. Look what Einstein was able to trace down because he discovered these laws, right. universal laws, yeah. you know, and, and so the fact that the universe is based off of laws itself, maybe laws that we as human beings don't recognize right away, you need, you need a brain like Einstein to recognize them. I mean, you said you're a person that's, that's into, you know, um, you know physics and, and yeah. things of that nature. You know, you know those laws that exist. And so if those laws exist, then certainly for these human beings that are so quick to judge each other, damn, I better put some laws in place. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and the laws are basically to help build community. Right. The practicality and the functionality yeah. of the world relies on, I was just talking with somebody who came in today and they were talking about how, because we had the Italian festival yesterday. So their, their whole parking lot, which is private, signs up, was jammed with cars and nobody could get their cars out. 
And, uh, and, I, and I was giggling because there was a, I visit my parents every Friday in Poughkeepsie and, uh, and I stay the night, I had dinner, stay the night, do chores and then come back because my parents were like in the late 70s. And so there was a, I, but I do on the way here, pick up a, a short, filthy, dirty chai. So filthy, dirty is two shots. And so uh, there was a guy with a, like a dually truck that pulled in to the three spaces and it's packed in the morning. You know, it's really like, it's not. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 because I, in, in my, throughout my career, I dispense justice as I see fit. I, of course, pull up right behind him, park my car, and then go in because the spots are taken. And he comes out. I come out and he goes, is this your car? I said, yeah. And he goes, uh, I was telling this story, like I said, earlier this morning. To someone, and I go, I go, yeah, it's my car. And he goes, uh, he's like, you're holding me up. And I said, well, I'm just going to sit here and drink my drink. And he goes, uh, he goes, well, he goes, well, I'm going to call the cops. And I said, you can call. And uh, the cops came and, uh, and they, they all know me in Poughkeepsie. But I said, listen, I want you to ticket me, but ticket him too. And he goes, you're going to take a ticket. You could just move your car. We could just have this done with. I said, no. And I said, he goes, he goes, why? I go, you know, there's civilities. There's niceties. There's things, there's, there's protocols. And so you're used to bullying people around. No one's going to do everything to drive around the truck. I said, but I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and we were chatting about it, like I said, this morning. But I think it applies a little bit to our conversation. Yeah. Problem is, is that if there are no rules, we will eventually create rules somehow. And there'll be a different construct, right? In, in Soviet Russia, it wasn't the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It was Marx, Engels, and Lenin. Exactly. And, and so... Um, and, and, and that, that it, you have to transplant things a different way in order for us to logically look at stuff where, where it, we can have a sense of community, uh, theology, and, and, and identity. And that may not be re- religious in nature. It could be anything, right. right? It could be just working at the steel mill. You had an identity, right? You had a theology, right? The machines are more important than you. Um, and let's, or the, maybe the people were more important. Let's not talk about the mach- them because that's scary. You know, and then and and you had but you had a sense of I'm a steel worker. I, you know, I the, the theology of production and uh, and 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 uh, and the community of the camaraderie, even the machines. Like I, I have a relationship with all my machines here, my little robot friends. You know, so like I know that donut machine. I know my mixer. Yeah. You know, and they all have little personalities, and uh, we talk to each other in the morning when I'm by myself. You know, and so I and that's all a construct that only exists with me and now with the workers here. So in a weird way, we have this strange sort of faith community here centered around baking, which is the under overarching theology, right? Um, You know, we, we got to produce manna, which is, you know, bread and stuff like that. So, um, so we talk, we always talk about Paul and, and uh, we were, you were talking about Paul going in through like, so we talking about going in through the back door, which I think is really important um, because it's, it's jumping over the law, jumping over even the Jewish Jesus movement and, and creating this, this whole new construct of salvation. And I asked you the question in one of our conversations about what, like, so what do you think actually happened on the road to Damascus? Yeah, like, because you know, Jesus is supposed to appear to, to Paul three times, right? Supposedly. Like, you know, so, so, and the, the the word appearance and I is is you know that's in big air quotes and my whole thing is it's great it's you know Jesus is gone and he's able to now legitimize everything he says by saying he's got you know a, a, a pipeline to 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 Jesus well what is you you would describe it in a very interesting way um, and it in which could I think implicitly be an appearance it's like an epiphany, but get, get, why don't you unpack to me what you think happened on the road to Damascus okay. with Paul? Um, first off, uh, it's mentioned in the book of Acts that Jesus appeared to Paul. Uh, go through Paul's letters. He doesn't even really mention that. Uh, there's a vague thing in, in Corinthians about being caught up in a certain heaven and all this stuff. But other than that, Paul really doesn't say, hey, you know, he says an untimely appearance you know, but he really doesn't give in, get into the Damascus experience like, like Luke does in the, in the book of Acts. But, and I think part of that is because it, 
you know, and this is where, you know, my colleagues cringe. I don't think it's so much as an appearance as it was an awareness. And to me, there's two, that's two different things. The awareness for Paul, because Paul is a good Pharisee. That's why he's working up the Pharisaic ladder. That's why he was given this assignment. And so there's a good chance that Paul's pouring over the law while he's on his way to Damascus because he wants to be a good lawyer. He wants to be a good Pharisee. This is not a kangaroo court. This is These are real things that they see as a breaking of the law and why they can go after these, these Christians, as they were called. Naturally, they were called Christians. These are good, are very judicious. They're very good judicious, at, at yes. arguing, at, at, at putting an argument together, That's proving right. their point. They're going to prove then, the point. And then and getting to the point, again, getting to a point that, Benefits them in large part, but that's because their knowledge of the law exactly. and the knowledge of other societal constructs at the time. Exactly. Right. So, you know, and Jesus was not a Pharisee. No. And I'm just making sure. He was, he was, he was identified as a rabbi. Right. But he wasn't a Pharisee. Okay. Yeah. No, I read an article that says, what if Jesus was a Pharisee? I just thought that's why I'm quoting funny. Because I was like, what if he was a Pharisee? But, but it is interesting. Jesus does use what will later be considered as a Hasidic argument. Okay. Especially in prayer. But that's 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 for another time. Right, that's not, you know, get back to Paul. So so I believe what, what happens is, is Paul's pouring over the law. He's pouring over the first five books and he gets to Abraham. And for the first time, because of the argument with this whole Jesus movement, for the first time, he stumbles across Abraham because, you know, this whole thing that, you know, everyone's welcome into this this movement of jesus and all this stuff still we're kind of tentative on the on the, the these uncircumcised greeks you know but you know but uh peter's making movement into the gentile area you know and and so paul's going over this and for some reason i believe he goes to abraham and the reason i say that is because the way he constructs his argument in romans where he does you know pull the whole abraham story together and what he says is is that you know, before the law, before circumcision, Abraham was considered as righteous. How can that be? You know, and so for the first time, Paul, because he's trying to make an honest argument, he comes into this and it just hits him in the face, you know, and I think it literally, I don't know if I could use this on a broadcast, but I'm going to, you can beep it out. It knocked him on his ass. Yeah. It knocked him on his Pharisaic ass. And so the first time, all this it's a roadblock. It's a dead end, right? Yeah. So you can't. There's nowhere to go where you can unpack it and with an argument of with a, with an argument with an argument that that backs what he's doing. He's a bounty hunter, right? Right. You know, hunting Christians down and saying that they're well, not blasphemous. What were they? What was he? What would he call? They're heretics. They're heretics. That's it. Heretics. So they are heretics. So 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 he's like that. This is and and he feels like he's righteous because of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, knows he, he says that in Philippians. Right. I was a Jew among Jews. Right. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. You know, right. I mean, he he's proud of what he knows about. But he what what he started to realize is I'm using this for self-righteousness, right. not for the righteousness of community. You know, and like I said, you know, what I understand of the Hebrew practice of an argument, the closer you get to the front part of the Tanakh the stronger your argument is. I mean, Jesus did that in the argument over divorce when the Pharisees came up. Is it lawful for a man to write a certificate of divorce and discard his wife? You know, all of a sudden, this isn't about a marriage falling apart. This is about power. Right. You know, so Jesus says, hey, in the beginning, oh, crap, he's in Genesis. He's in the first part of Genesis. Yeah. You know, because first he asked him, he says, what does Moses say? And they're all over it. Yeah. You know, Moses said, we can write a certificate of divorce. And Jesus said, well, I said that because you're hardness of heart, because you guys would have been jumping in one bed to another. So there had to be some sort sense of, of structure. But in the beginning, and all of a sudden he leaps over Moses and goes to Genesis, the first part of Genesis, the very three, first three words of Genesis, in the beginning. Yeah. You know, God made you male and female, you know, and, and gave this structure of equality because the idea of writing a certificate and discarding, you could, if your wife burnt a toast in the morning, you could write a certificate of divorce. After 12 children, if she's not quite as attractive as she used to be, you could write a certificate of divorce, you know, and Jesus jumps over all of that, goes to the beginning and says, oh. you know what, 
No, no, I'm saying into Jesus' argument. He does what Paul does. Right. You know, that's what I'm saying. This is a Hebrew practice. Right. Yeah. You know, Jesus jumps over all of them, sticks the landing right. in the beginning of Genesis, says, hey, this is about equality. Yeah. Bone from bone, flesh of flesh. There is no one above the other. You know, yeah. you know, that's that's kind of. But Paul does that same thing in landing in Abraham. Right. You know, all of a sudden, everything he was going to use as an argument against these Christians in Damascus starts to dissolve before him. You know, and, and so now, you know, that's why he spends his day on the street or days in street on straight, just going, right. my whole foundation has just been pulled out from underneath me. Right. You know, and we use the, the, the imagery in Acts, Luke uses the image of scales fell down from his eyes, you know, as he's able to see through the law and see the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of human beings. And so all of a sudden, everything changes for him, you know. And I give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I tear into Paul here and there, you know, but I give him the benefit of the doubt. He's trained as a Pharisee and he's, he's weighing through all of this, trying to figure out what's this Jesus movement about? You know, is he Jew? Is he something else? You know, what is this? And he's trying to weigh through that. And granted, he's carrying his Pharisee baggage with him. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. You know, so are his letters perfect? Yeah. At risk of being considered a heretic? No, they're not. And he even admits that they're not. Well, even at that time, he's kind of, th- I look at it, Paul is like sort of thinking out loud. Yeah. And, and so he's, he's kind of thinking out loud and none of, there wasn't scripture then either, right? No, you, so had, not, you had the Tanakh, that right, was it. Right, so, so this, is, this, is, this is him trying to figure, muddle through what he's, what, what he's thinking about. And, and, and doing it in letters to people here, there, wherever. And like I said, the beauty of his argument or the beauty of way, his way of going about it. Like I said, I appreciate, I like from a, from an intelligence standpoint, it's, it's like, he's, he's really, really good at, at human. He's really good at human intelligence and, and creating an argument where you're going to be reading his letter and he's going to hit points that of where, where everybody would consider something or consider everybody at some point in their life would say, Oh, I've been wondering about this. And he makes those connections and brings you into his argument exactly. so that, so that you start to muddle through the same things he's wrestling with, but there wasn't scripture at that time. Right. So he's writing letters all out. There was no gospels. There was nothing. Right. There's, Actually his letters were probably the first thing being written down. Well, so now you, so you open the door on this one. So James, the brother, I always bring this in who is from a, from an Islamic standpoint, you know, family lineage is yeah. like really, really yeah. big. Right. So James is, is there, right? James exists. James is in charge of the Jewish Jesus movement, part of the Sanhedrin, right? Um, um, I think they called... Well, Paul, James wasn't in the Sanhedrin. He wasn't? No. Okay, I don't know if he was. So he was, he was one of the, the founders. I mean, he was, he, even after, you know, if you read the Gospel of John, him and the family thought, this Jesus, my brother's out of his head. Out of his head. They try to restrain him a couple of things, but then he ends up following his brother. You know? Right. And then, and then when, after, after, after um, Jesus is gone, the, the, he, he carries through on the Jewish Jesus movement, right? right. That's his exactly. jam. He tries to walk that fine line of, of me, of Judaism and Jesus and keep that going. Right. So how would you look at what Paul's trying to do in conjunction, like, and, and with, with, with G, what James is trying to do at the same time? And, you know, and you mentioned this thing, like he was family. So yeah. there's a different, Oh, yeah. I mean, dichotomy they grew up and... arguing with Jesus who gets what bed, probably. I mean, they, I'm sure they were arguing over all kinds of any sibling. I mean, me and my brother, I mean, the arguments we had, I got a chipped tooth over some of those arguments my brother had and I had. And I'm sorry, Jesus and James were no different. You know, right. uh, Jesus didn't, James went, don't pull that Messiah crap on me. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm getting this bunk, you know, right. but, but afterwards, I mean, when the dust settles, James, the one that tries to pull it back into faith. I mean, I love in James' letter, James goes, faith without works is dead. Right. You know, Paul's going justification by grace through faith. And, and James is going, no, faith without works is dead. And, and what he's saying is, he's not saying religion is dead. He's not saying that you're going to, to hell. What he's saying is, if we don't do these things that Jesus laid the, the map for, is reaching out to people, touching the dead people, um, 
sitting with a Samaritan woman, you know, all the things that he did to break those, those lines that we form. If we don't live our lives that way, then no one's going to know anything about this faith. No one's going to know how to live faithfully, you know, with each other. You know, if we just, if we just say, oh, someone comes in in need and we just say, oh, we'll pray for you. You know, God bless you. We'll say, do a little anointing and we'll kick your butt out the door. If we do that, people are not going to know what this faith is about. We have to immerse ourselves in the same actions as Jesus. And I'm not saying Paul didn't, but Paul was putting it into this philosophical, theological way. And James going, no, faith is action. Faith is works. You know, you got to be a little more specific on that, Paul. Uh, Peter even writes in, in one of his letters, I can't remember his first or second Peter, uh, towards the end, he goes, ah, we know Paul, we know some of that stuff, I don't even understand Paul, you know, so even in the disciples, there's this not said disagree, not, not so much a disagreement, it's just saying, hey, we don't quite understand where you're going, you know, so it's not like they were setting up being in conflict with each other, they're just saying, hey, you know, let's try to muddle through this together. Yeah. You know, and, and so they're trying to pull this thing to, to, together on on what this thing means now that Jesus is gone. What does this mean? You know, Paul thought Jesus was coming back right away. Right. You know, his first letters, he's he's thinking, you know, don't get married. Don't do this. You know, don't get caught up in this stuff because Jesus is coming. Well, by the time he gets to Romans, yeah. he knows that's not the case. Yeah. He knows he's made a mistake. I mean, that's why he says. You know, in Romans, I do the things I shouldn't do, the things I should do. I got the spiritual battle. He's he's basically saying, uh, mea culpa, you know, uh, it's my bad, yeah. you know. But now he's planning on, hey, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to Spain. Well, we know he doesn't get out of it, but he's thinking it in a broader way. You know, so there's all this morphing that's taking place in this Jesus movement, you know, that that I think is we as Christians – we try to solidify it. We try to concrete it. We try to put it in stone. And I don't think it was ever meant to be that. You know, I mean, if you follow the book of Acts, women in the upper room, that's that's a separation that was gone. You know, uh, you know, you have women being arrested with the male disciples. That's that's we don't realize how earth shattering that is. And then you get to the part of Philip baptizing an Ethiopian eunuch, you know, in that short set a paragraph, you know, Philip or Luke, Luke mentions four or five times that this is a eunuch. Does he think we got ADD? We can't remember what this conference, or is there a theological significance of this? Yeah. You know, it is, it's his rever reverting back of what Isaiah said about eunuchs being welcome and actually their, their names being written on the wall. Those who were considered as sexually defiled at one time. Yeah. You know, so that's another hurdle, another group of people brought in. And then finally, the Gentiles are brought in. You know, there's all this morphing that's taking place in this first century church that's about reaching out, about getting people to understand what this love of God revealed in Jesus is about. And the, the church for 1600 years since Constantine has forgotten that, yeah. you know, and so that now we got this theological zoo of you know, my belief's better than your belief. My understanding of Jesus is better than your understanding of Jesus and all this stuff. And it, it's stuff the first, second, and third century church would. It, it's alien language. Right. I mean, I think that the, yeah, well, I think the idea, of, you know, once, once, once Rome picks it up, I mean, it moves into a, a different. Well, it was Constantinople. But yeah, Constantinople. But, you know, but, you know, yeah. it's, you know, the West, the, the Eastern Empire. And, and before, you know, you know, if once, once it moves in that direction, the, this interesting God, the God man, yeah, exactly. the whole concept starts to become solidified and, and starts moving in, in an interesting direction. But I, I think, yeah, the, the idea that it, it, in all fairness to Paul, which I'm very harsh on, I don't say harsh on, but I'm always joking around with that, that the idea that this, that, that this, that there wasn't any scripture at that time, that they're muddling through what's going on. You know, you have this Pharisee who's very judicious, who's kind of getting going through trying to figure out the best arguments so that he can commit, you know, um, essentially murder, I think, and uh, <laughs> really persecute people. And so, um, but he, he, you know, from your perspective, he has this sort of aha moment because he can't, there's something that he can't figure out with all the stuff that's going on in his head and knowing the law. And then, and he turns around and says, okay, I now have to rethink who I am as a person because he knew who he was and what he was about. Yeah. And now he has to rethink who he is and what he's about. 
Um, and in a very, you know, Pauline manner, he decides to, you know, grab whatever this new notion is. And he runs like sprints with it, you know, like to the point where it's kind of crazy because he's not a disciple. He didn't know Jesus. Maybe there was an appearance three times, one or, you know, a couple, we don't know. And, um, and, but he does just persevere on that path and, and really does, I mean, he is a founder of the church, right? Essentially, uh, through some of this, using the similar arguments that Jesus did with less, less complication, maybe. In, yeah, in, and, in and I think, I think he, because being a good Pharisee, being a good lawyer, there were incidents of, of Jesus and this movement that followed him. I'm sure there was some documentation, you know, um, in, in the Christian circles, there's, it's called the Q gospel, the Q, yeah. that gospel that nobody knows. Well, we can't find it. We can't find any. Well, of course you did, because it was an oral tradition sure. at first. There were sages walking, going around telling the story of Jesus. Nothing was written down. Our, our minds were more on memory, based on memory and telling the story, right. you know, than it was on, you know, writing it down. Right. Because most everyone was illiterate. Didn't mean they were stupid. What to me, when I hear illiterate, means they understood memory much better than we did. And they were able to recapture it. So, so yeah, you can't find a cue. The closest you're going to come to cue is probably Mark's gospel, which is the shortest one, which is all this immediacy. I mean, when, when I read the first time I read the, the, the gospel of Mark from beginning to end, I'm going, this is exactly what it would sound like around a campfire. Right. Immediately he did this yeah. right away. He did this, you know, all this immediacy that's within it. That's something a sage could be at a campfire, I mean, really getting into it, keeping the captive on the edge captive. But the beauty of it is when you get to the end of Mark, all of a sudden it ends and the women were terrified. All right. You know, I was like, okay. Yeah. Well, it's a cliffhanger. Where, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where's the ending? Yeah. You know, where's the rest of the story? Well, all of a sudden you start realizing you are the rest of the story. Okay. You know. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because in this in Islam you have the injal, which is that the idea that that there which I, I make the connection it, it's Q, right? The idea that there was a book of sayings or the idea and it wasn't so much of a chronicle of of, of Jesus's life. It was a book of sayings. In Islam, you know, the Quran, you have the Hadith, uh, Sunnah and the Hadith, Sunnah is the way way in which the Prophet lived. And and the Quran is 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 the word, right? The last word. Uh, sunnah is the uh, is the way in which the prophet lived, and and then the hadiths are sayings. Right? So so it, from an Islamic perspective, it's very appealing to have a book of sayings because it's in alignment with the idea that you would record certain things. But you have people around them that justify it, and there's a process to right. say, all right, this is the saying of the prophet, right? And and, when I, and so we always say peace be upon him, but peace be upon him and his family not just Muhammad, but as a decent Jesus as well, because he's a prophet as well. And so the idea would be that there is, um, are, and we're lucky because the, the, because the prophet had existed when we know people have other people around him and the sayings have to be justified by multiple followers and then scholars have to agree and then say, this is what it means and all that other stuff. It's a little more complicated with how or Jesus, right? Because it happened farther back and there, what there, there, there aren't the same processes in place to figure out what the Sunnah and what the Hadiths are, you know. Um, and I always use the example of the, 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 the bleeding lady, the lady that, 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 that touched the cloak, you know, what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. I don't know how, what, how it's depicted, but there's three versions of that, right? And there's a versions where there's a version, and I can't remember it all because I used to say this quite a bit when I was speaking, but there's the version where Jesus gets really kind of angry about what happened. And he's kind of like really off the cuff, like what happened, what's going on. And then there's the more, the Jesus that that's the more Christian Jesus. It's like, Oh, you know, young lady, blah, 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 go with God, all that business. And there's three versions of that story. And you can see that that story could be told over a campfire mm -hmm. and depending on who the audience is right. said a certain exactly. way. Um, I think it's just, and, but there's one, an instance that you could say there's three uh, interpretations of that instance or three um, stories and they and there's three separate versions and 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 with I think in, in a form of an Islamic perspective you could say all right this event happened um, multiple witnesses were there and, uh, and and those witnesses were close to close to the prophet therefore 
we could say that this is an occurrence. This is then scholars would pine over it and say, this is the moral of the story, or this is what it means. Yeah. Right. Um, I always joke with Matthew about the magic cloak. You know, I say, I say was, was it a magic cloak because it drained of the energy? And, you know, I, I always poke fun at, at Matthew about it. But the, the story in itself is what's important, right? Because we're teaching morals and values and ethics and rules and all that really good stuff. Um, and so like a show like Ancient Aliens would say, would say we have to find Jesus's magic cloak because maybe it has power, you know, that type well, of yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you get into, but see, that's the religiosity of this. Right. You know, uh, if, if I come at it for the relational aspect of righteousness, you know, what does this story tell me? You know, uh, well, Jesus is in a crowd of people. You know, someone touches his cloak. He experiences that loss of power. And so he turns his disciples and says, who touched me? Right. You know, his disciples are going, shit, Jesus, you're surrounded by people. How yeah. are we supposed to keep track? Right. And Jesus says, I want to know who that person is. Yeah. You know, in, in other ways, you know, the disciples are saying, what about, we don't have time for this, Jesus. Right. And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. Let's stop and see what the need is. You know, that's what that story tells me. Right. See, because we get caught up and this. This is the theological part of it. We get caught up to try to dissect the miracle part of it, yeah. you know, the, the supernatural part of it, you know, and, and we, I don't know if we, we think Jesus is like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's right. I come here to, to cure people, you know, or do we see Jesus as the person who said, no, no, understanding righteousness means you care for someone. Right. So I don't give a shit how big the crowd is. Let's find out who this person is. So I know exactly what the need was. Right. And yeah. What are we doing and, and, and why? You know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a relationship. There's a person who touched me. I want to know who it was. Right. You know, all of a sudden for me in this understanding of Bonhoeffer's righteousness, that's what I see happening. Yeah. You know, and and we and, and, and when we do that, we elevate Jesus to this deityism and we forget about all the human reactions that he had. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, no, I, I appreciate that, that comment. And this is a good, it's a good place to, to pause because we'll continue the conversation about, about Paul and so forth. But, but I think this is a really good moment. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time, ah, man, you know, and, you. and chatting because I think it's important for not only our listeners, but even for me, for my understanding, because we are, I always unpack these things all the time, but we, you know, getting into the theology and religion and politics, although we haven't gotten into the politics of, of Jesus or, or gotten too much into the politics, although we did talk a little bit about the beginnings of our country and stuff. I do appreciate you taking the time, Pastor Tim. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be sitting here with you, and, and uh, uh, I just love exploring faith because I think faith, whether it's Jewish, whether it's Islam, whether it's Christian, speaks to us of opportunities and possibilities of being together in a positive way. Well, I think we're all, you know, part of this, you know, what's we're one beach of the same ponds, but I, like I said, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for asking.